ask that you would teach us now that the truth that has been imparted by your Holy Spirit through these words would rest into our hearts. And in part of that, Lord, that our lives would be changed by it, that we would understand the God who exists, the God who loves us, the God who sent his only son to redeem us from our sins, so that we might love you more and we might express our hearts more in reverence and in worship to you. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, last week I spoke of the difficulties of doing funerals, but one of the joys of my job is doing weddings. Our marriage policy at the church requires anyone that is seeking Christian marriage at Providence to do premarital counseling. And whenever I meet a couple for the first session, I always ask them to share with me how they met and how they fell in love. I love hearing the many ways that God brings two people together from two different backgrounds to enter into a one flesh relationship. I don't think these couples would mind, but some of the more recent ones come to mind. I think of Jimbo and Molly, who were just married yesterday. Uh, a man living in Hazel Green, Alabama, meets a girl living in upstate New York through a cousin that is getting his doctorate at UAH. That's a little strange one, isn't it? And these two are led to get married through it. Amazing. But that pales in comparison to a girl from Huntsville, Alabama, who does some mission work in Manado, Indonesia, and meets the man of her dreams who was born on a small island between Indonesia and the Philippines. Who would have thunk that one? Of course, I'm speaking of Rendy and Olivia, who now have a beautiful baby girl. The way God providentially brings together a husband and wife is truly amazing. My own story with Lisa is remarkable. Lisa was from Middle Tennessee. I was from South Carolina. We met at a Christian summer camp in North Carolina. Lisa was not supposed to be working at that camp. In fact, she was a student at Georgia Tech and had an internship lined up that had fallen through. And her sister told her that she could uh, come to camp and take on the glorious job of working in the laundry room there with the children. Well, Lisa couldn't find anything else to do, so she took it. And amazingly, we were both dating other people when we first met. And yet, by the end of that summer, we were highly interested in one another. I will let her tell you about my famous pickup line. Let's just say I would not encourage other young men to use it if they hoped to catch a spouse. Speaking of that, I also don't necessarily recommend the method used in our story this morning either. I don't think I would use the strategy of having my dad send one of his employees to a distant land to find me someone to marry. However, there are some characteristics that occur in the story that I would encourage when seeking a spouse, and I'll point out those along the way. This, if you didn't notice earlier, is the longest episode in Genesis. 67 verses, so it must be important. Chapter 24 plays out in four scenes. Scene one is Abraham commissioning his servant to seek a bride for Isaac. Scene two is the servant meeting Rebekah. Scene three occurs in Bethuel's household as the servant encourages Rebekah's family to let her return with him to Canaan. And the final scene is Isaac and Rebekah's first meeting. So that's going to form our outline this morning. The commissioning, meeting Rebekah, Bethuel's household, and the couple meet. 
And we'll save just a little bit of time at the end to address why all of this is important. So let's examine here the first scene. Now we get the impression that verse one is telling us there's about to be a transition to a new generation. It tells us that Abraham was old and he had tremendous blessings in all things, particularly material blessings. So Abraham calls for his oldest and most trusted servant. Now, some commentators believe that this is Eleazar of Damascus, mentioned back in chapter 15, but we can't say for certain. But it is interesting to note that his name is not used throughout the entire episode. And that is because the emphasis will be on the Lord's guidance, not upon this man's ingenuity. It is Yahweh who is the hero of this story, not the servant. Now, I will explain this strange oath in just a moment, but let's first look at the commission here. There are three requests that Abraham is asking of his servant. Number one, Abraham desires this man to travel back towards Abraham's homeland and find his son a wife from among his relatives. The servant is not to cut corners and take a woman from the Canaanites. She must be from Abraham's kindred. Number two, the man must not take Isaac with him in this selection. Isaac is not to leave the promised land. We might wonder why, but the last verse of the chapter reveals that Isaac is grieving here. He would have been vulnerable and susceptible to remaining among his father's relatives. Remember, Isaac is now an only son. Without a wife, once Abraham dies, there is no one else. Abraham is conscious of this, and he also had to learn his own lesson of remaining in the land of promise. Notice that he doesn't leave either. And the third request here, according to verse 7, the servant is to trust Yahweh's leading. He says specifically that Yahweh would send his angel before him. No doubt this would be similar to Hagar being led by the angel of the Lord back in chapter 16, verse 7. So these instructions would appear to have come directly from the Lord to Abraham. Yahweh's name will be invoked 17 times throughout this passage. It is clear that the servant is to do the searching and Yahweh is to do the leading. It is obvious that the servant is skeptical from verse 8. And who could blame him? In, in the days before cell phones and GPS, this man is to travel to a foreign land, locate Abraham's extended family, and convince a young woman to come back with him to a place where his master wanders from place to place. I'd be a little skeptical as well. But Abraham is certain, so certain that he would relieve the man of his oath should he fail. But let me explain this odd oath here in verse 9. We're not exactly sure why one placed their hand under the thigh of the person to whom they were swearing allegiance. But through deduction, scholars believe that the hand was placed near the genitalia that represented the life force and the progeny of a man. It was a sacred oath just short of cutting a covenant. And it meant that the one who was being sworn to was trusting his family to, and his progeny, his descendants, to the one that was taking the oath. And we're going to see Isaac do the same to his son, Jacob. And Jacob will do the same to his son, Joseph. 
In fact, Jacob will also place Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, on his thighs, on his lap in chapter 48, which signified that the patriarch was adopting these two boys born in Egypt as legitimate heirs. They will be co-equals with Joseph's 11 brothers. Abraham was entrusting his family line to this nameless servant, and that's why he requires this oath here. Scene two begins at verse 10 as the servant prepares for the journey, choosing choice gifts to give as the bride price here. And he makes his way to the city of Nahor, Abraham's brother, who would appear to already be deceased. This journey would have taken approximately one month between Padan Aram and uh, Beersheba. And he arrives at the city well, and he has no idea what to do next. And he notices that's the time of day when women would draw water from the well. And he does something incredibly smart here. He worships and he prays to the God of Abraham who has always kept his promise and never let him down due to his hesed, his loving kindness, his covenantal love that he promised to Abraham. That is a smart move. And it's the first time in the Bible that we have a specific prayer for guidance. In fact, there's a test there. The woman who draws water for him and also for his camels. And according to verse 45, later, a little bit later on, this was a silent prayer. He did not say this aloud. But no sooner had the servant finished it when lo and behold, Rebekah arrived at the well. The narrator highlights several features of Rebekah. She is what we would call top shelf. First, he reveals her genealogy. She's a member of Abraham's extended family. He reveals that she is beautiful and that she is a maiden, a technical term in Hebrew, meaning she's of marriable age. And he highlights her chastity. She is still a virgin, unmarried, and not betrothed to anyone else. She is hospitable and willing to serve and share her water with the servant to drink. And she demonstrates her kindness to animals and to the servant by agreeing to haul water out of the well for his camels. Now remember, verse 10 said there were 10 camels. Camels can hold up to 25 gallons of water each. Rebecca must have been a strong woman to take on such a task by herself. None of this went unnoticed by the servant who immediately showers her with gold and he acquires of her lineage and lo and behold, he discovers that she's of Abraham's family and willing to put him up for the night. So the servant is in Yah of Yahweh and takes a moment once again to worship and attribute his success to Abraham's God. Now, this act of hospitality on Rebecca's part leads us to scene three in Bethuel's household. Oddly, Abraham's nephew Bethuel is never recognized in the story. It's unclear if he's away on a journey or deceased or somehow physically incapacitated. But his son Laban appears and he makes all the decisions. Now Laban's going to feature again in Isaac's son, Jacob's life, later in Genesis. But one trait is noticed here that will bear out later in the story. He is greedy. The first thing that he notices is the gold Rebekah is wearing. And Rebekah gives a quick account of what has transpired and Laban is quick to offer the man hospitality. Now we've mentioned this before. But camels were somewhat rare during this period in the region. The fact that this man has multiple animals and all this gold meant that he was something special. Laban offers the man a meal, but the servant 
For him, the mission comes first before food. It highlights his loyalty to Abraham and his God. He first tells Bethuel's household a little about Abraham and Sarah. In verse 36, he reveals that they had a son in their old age, letting his listeners know that Isaac is not too old for Rebekah. Otherwise, she would, he would have been the same age as Rebekah's father here. He is only referred to as Abraham's son, not Isaac. But he emphasizes that all that belongs to Abraham belongs now to Isaac exclusively. And starting in verse 37, he begins to recount his mission almost word for word in what transpired in the previous verses. While it would be tedious for us to go over it again, we can't overlook the fact that this man went to great pains to rehearse it precisely. He wants this pagan family to hear the testimony of Yahweh's goodness and faithfulness. The one true God is the one who is orchestrating this. And in verse 50, Laban, whom we will later discover is a narcissist as well as a pagan, has to acknowledge that all of this has come from the Lord, from Yahweh. He agrees to allow Rebekah to return, to, uh, return with the servant there. And as soon as he does, for the third time, the servant worships Yahweh in verse 52. Again, the reader is being told who is arranging all of this. He brings out princely gifts to present to Rebecca and her family. And no doubt Laban is pleased. He stays the night, but he's ready to leave the next day. And Laban, who is very possessive and very controlling himself, wants Rebecca to stay and adjust to this new situation, perhaps even to see if he can get some more presents from the servant. But the servant insists on leaving as soon as possible. And Laban leaves the decision to Rebecca. And Rebecca becomes like Abraham. She is willing to leave her homeland and family to follow Yahweh by faith. She doesn't have to leave alone here. Verse 50 tells us that a nurse accompanies her, whom later we will discover is Deborah. And in verse 61, there are some other maidens that accompany her since the need for the 10 camels. It would have been unseemly for this man, no matter his age, to be traveling alone with Rebecca. And this party returns back to Beersheba, which brings us to our final scene. This is when the couple meet. And even though it's the shortest scene, it carries the most tension, doesn't it? What will they think of each other? Will there be a mutual attraction? I mean, after all, we know more about Rebecca and her character than we know about Isaac at this point. What will she think of him? Verse 62 tells us that Isaac had been out by the well, Bir Lahai Roy. Remember, this was the well where the angel of the Lord met Hagar in chapter 16 when she ran off from Sarah. Hagar gave the well the name as the living one who sees me. This is where Isaac had been dwelling. Was he there because he was lonely and grieving and he was praying, Lord, do you see me? Do you see my condition right now? My, my mother is dead. My father is about to die. And I'm getting ready to be all alone. We can only speculate. Isaac strolls out into the field to meditate, which reveals he was a, a contemplative person, a thinker, and most likely a man accustomed to praying. And at that moment, he lifts up his eyes and happens to see a train of camels approaching. 
And Rebekah sees him too and asks for his identity. And the servant says, that is my master, meaning Isaac had the same authority as Abraham. Now remember, she was traveling with a pack of women. Isaac would not know which is one of these women would be his intended. So she veiled herself. And this was a custom of what brides did. So she sees him and she is communicating to Isaac, I am your one. I am your one. Gives you the hand tingles, doesn't it, Amelia? When you see that? Amelia tells me every time she sees something romantic uh, on TV or anything else, she gets these tingles in her hands and she calls them her hand tingles. She knew Jacob was the one because she, she got hand tingles. <laughs> the servant tells Isaac everything so that Isaac would know that this was Yahweh's choice. And here is the conclusion, verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So we learn that Isaac not only obtains a wife, but he is no longer lonely. He is comforted after his mother's death. He now has a companion. So as we conclude, let's take a moment and ask ourselves, what should we take away from this extended narrative? Is this the way that one should look for a spouse? Well, you already know my answer to that. I would say not unless you have a direct revelation from God like Abraham had. And I would question such revelation now that the Bible is complete. But there are a few behaviors that we would emulate within this story and a couple of lessons for us. First, I just want to say that I acknowledge from 1 Corinthians 7 and also from Matthew 19 that God calls some to singleness. Jesus said, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And I believe that those who are called to be single accept that situation for themselves because they know that that is God's will for their life. So I'm not going to discount their position within the church. I just want to make sure that I bring that about. But this passage shows us that God values marriage and companionship. That is the first lesson. This story is appropriately placed. After all, the intrigue of the previous 12 chapters of Abraham trying to pass off Sarah as his sister, twice no less, and Lot's illicit relationship with his daughters, and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the situation between Hagar and Sarah, it seems right that we have such a beautiful story to reset our understanding of marriage and that God uses marriage to further the purposes of his kingdom. It is a gift and a blessing of common companionship, and it will be the means of God introducing to us the savior of the world. Second, when one desires to be married, there are two lessons here. First, pray to God to lead you to the person whom you are to marry. And if you are a believer in Jesus, that should certainly narrow down the field to marry in the Lord. You should be seeking a fellow believer first and foremost. And chances are they're looking to the Lord to lead them to the right person. So don't despair. You have that in your favor. You're both praying to the same God to bring you together. In addition to prayer, 
trust the Lord's providence. There is a connection to faith in the Lord and prayer. They are intertwined. Jesus taught in Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. If marriage is a good thing ordained by God and you are searching for a spouse among believers, then have faith that God will bring that about in his timing. Don't settle. Don't be rash. Exercise God's wisdom but also trust that the Lord will bring this about in his timing. And he will do it when he is ready to do it. And when you are ready to do it. After he has formed you and forged you into the person he needs you to be, to be united with a mate. And finally, let's consider this episode in salvific history. Yes, Isaac and Rebekah marry. They eventually produce twins, and their son Jacob will receive the promise and his son Judah will receive the inheritance of leadership that will filter all the way down through David and later Joseph and eventually to King Jesus when the incarnate son enters the world. That all comes about through this union of Isaac and Rebekah. But also don't lose sight of the fact that Isaac was hurting. He was alone. He desired a mate, a woman's touch that could replace the gentleness of his mother. And as the quote on your worship guide states, he wasn't just a mere cog in God's sovereignty. God truly cared about Isaac and his condition. Our God does whatever he pleases. We have seen that throughout Genesis. But consider his tenderness as he does it. He cares for his people. And he cares for you. you. You are not some pawn in the game of life. I, I remember growing up, and I, I meant to look it up on the internet, what, what it was, but there was a movie that I watched. I want to say it was Jason and the Argonauts. It had really bad uh, stopgap animation. I don't know if y'all seen that, that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and it was the story of the gods who were using Jason and these men as pawns in their game over one another. That's not our God. Our God does not use us as little figures in his game, as little action figures. He cares about us. He loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his one and only son into the world to redeem us from our sin, from our rebellion to him. Let me just ask you, if you will, turn in your worship guide or if you want back in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. This is page 984. And I brought this out and uh, had us read this because not only does it talk about marriage and this wonderful relationship for husbands and wives and for parents and children, but... Look what he says in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved. You're God's chosen one. You are set apart. And what does it say? You are beloved. And he's, this is what he tells him to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Why are you to do this? Why are you to put on these attributes? Because they resemble your God, the God who loves you, the God who sent his son into this world, this sinful world, to live a perfect life, to be the perfect sacrifice, to receive on himself every punishment that you deserve for your sin. This God did this for you because he loves you. So don't believe that you are some pawn in the game of life, that you're some cog in the machine. Yes, God will do as he pleases, but he loves you. He loves you. And this is why Paul could say in Romans 8 that we know our God does all things for the good for those who love him. Let's pray. Lord, it's so easy sometimes to get into sort of this academic exercise of, of looking through Scripture, of studying, of reading, and, and seeing how your sovereignty plays out. We reform people. We love that, Lord, because we love knowing you are in control. But, Lord, I also pray that you would keep our hearts tender, that, Lord, you would work in us this same sort of love that you have for us as well, and that we would see you as this great God of love, this God who made every sacrifice so that we might be reconciled to you, even though we were the ones in rebellion. And because of that, Lord, I pray for the poor sinner who might be here going, I want to know this God. I, I need this God in my life. I pray, Lord, that you would use this as the beginning point, the starting point, that they would ask my fellow brothers and sisters here in this room how one can come to be in relationship with you. But, Lord, I pray that those of us that know you would realize that, that you cherish us. You dote on us. You love us immensely that you were willing to pay the ultimate cost for us, and that you want to transform us to be loving people as well. And Lord, we pray that you would enhance our love for one another. We pray, Lord, that we would take on these attributes that we just read about in Colossians. We pray, Lord, that we would do this to one another for your glory. And we pray, Lord, that we would truly understand that what motivates you has always been love. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you have done this on our behalf. And we pray that you would transform us into this type of love by the power and the work of Jesus Christ alone. We pray this in his finished word. Amen.